6. Hebrews chapter 6. And we're going to read the first eight verses. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms and of laying on of hands and of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permit. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. For the earth which drinketh in the rain that cometh oft upon it, and bringeth forth herbs meet for them by whom it is dressed, receiveth blessing from God. But that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected, and nigh unto cursing, whose end is to be burned. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this passage again today, we pray that you would help us to have understanding, and Lord, that we would uh, be able to perceive what is being said, but also that we might apply it to our own lives. And Lord, may we, in all of our study of Scripture, may we always seek to see, Lord, what you have for us in it. We thank you that you've given us your word. We thank you that you've given us your Holy Spirit to help us to understand and to obey your word. And Lord, we pray that you would bless this time that we have together today. And Lord, through the study of your word, that we might understand and be obedient hearers to the glory of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. This is the passage that we went over a couple of weeks ago, and I still wanted to explore it a little bit more. And so there's some of what you hear today, you've heard before, um, and we'll be adding some to it. By way of reminder, the writer of Hebrews is writing to Jewish believers, Jewish Christians. It's the epistle to the Hebrews. And he's writing to Jewish believers who have grown up in their culture, in their whole form of worship. And these people have been saved. They've come to the knowledge of Christ. And so he writes to these people. And as we've come down, he gives several warnings. There are several key warnings throughout the book of Hebrews, and we've looked at many of those. Um, And this warning that comes up in chapter 5, which leads into chapter 6, is found in verses 11 through 14. And here, the writer is speaking of Jesus Christ as our high priest, and he wants to tell them about the priesthood of Melchizedek. Because Jesus Christ, as a high priest, the Jews understood the Levitical priesthood. And no high priest, no one could be a high priest who was not of what? Of the tribe of Levi and specifically of the family of Aaron. And yet here is Jesus, and as we will see in chapter 7, Jesus is not from the tribe of Levi. Jesus descends from the tribe, if you recall, he descends from the tribe of Judah. And so there's this Melchizedek 
Melchizedek and he introduces Melchizedek and he wants to teach them about Melchizedek and to show them the parallels here to Christ and his high priesthood because Melchizedek was not a priest of the line of Levi either. In fact, he predated Levi. He was a contemporary of Abraham. But in verse 11 of chapter 5, speaking of Melchizedek, he says, of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing ye are dull of hearing. Now, when he says hard to be uttered, he didn't mean that it was difficult to understand, but for the fact that they were dull of hearing. They had become dull of hearing. And so there's this great warning about being dull of hearing. And by being dull of hearing, we've talked about that. That's Someone who is dull of hearing is someone who's heard it over and over and just tunes it out. Someone who has heard the truth over and over and has not acted on the truth. And this is one of the great dangers here that is being warned of. If we come and we hear the word of God and we don't act on it, if we don't obey it, if we don't allow it to affect our lives, then the next time we hear it, well, we've heard that before. And then we begin to tune out the word of God. We become spiritually imperceptive. We lose our ability to perceive and to understand, and we become dull of hearing. Dull of hearing. We're going to talk about that term a little bit more today. And so he warns them of their spiritual immaturity. They have become, in verse 12, he says, for the time being, I mean, you you have been in the faith long enough that you should be teaching others. But look at you, he says, you can't teach. You need to be retaught the basic principles, the very foundational precepts. He says, you have need that one teach you again which be the first principles of the oracles of God and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. And then we looked at that particular passage there talking about milk and strong meat. And your diet, what you require for your spiritual diet reveals a lot about your spiritual maturity. If you continually rely on and have need of just the basic elements, the beginning foundational principles of the faith then you are not skilled in the word of righteousness. Everyone that requires milk is not skilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. And there's so much more that the writer of Hebrews wants to teach these people. And he says that strong meat belongs to them that are of full age, those who are maturing in the faith. Even those who by reason of use or by exercise have their senses exercise to discern both good and evil and that use uh, using the word of god applying it those who by practice have exercised themselves to discern both good and evil and so there's this great warning going to these believers and then he goes into chapter six and this is where we were he says therefore leaving the principles of the doctrine of christ let us go on to perfection that word means maturity Let us go on to maturity. Now, as we go through this passage, it is very important that we remember the theme, the main point, because we're going to be looking at a lot of things in this passage, but what is the main point that the writer is trying to get across? He's saying to these believers, you need to go on to maturity. Don't remain a baby Christian. Listen, there's there's nothing wrong with being a baby Christian if you're just newly saved. Everyone starts that way. But for the time being, these people should have grown and matured. And so don't, lo- don't miss the forest for the trees, as they say. Remember, as we go through these verses, 
the objective of the author is to spur them on and to encourage them to true spiritual maturity. So he says, therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on to maturity, go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptism, of laying on of hands, and of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And there he lists some of these basic teachings that they have already had. Because I don't want to have to reteach you these things. We talked about those, the doctrine of baptisms. And when, you, and when you read that, you need to realize he is not talking about water baptism. He's not talking about sprinkling. He's not talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's not what he's talking about. He's speaking to Jews. And that word means washings. And he's talking about the ritual washings of the Levitical form of worship that they did at the temple. He's talking about these washings. And then laying, we know what resurrection of the dead is, but the laying on of hands... The laying on of hands, again, had nothing to do with the apostolic healing or when the people would receive the Holy Ghost, the apostles would lay their hands on these new believers. What he's talking about is in the Old Testament sacrificial system, when the people would bring a sacrifice there to the tabernacle or later on to the temple, what did they do? They would place their hands on the head of the animal, and it symbolized the transfer of their sin to that animal, which was going to be killed in their place. Remember, he's talking to Hebrews. I'm talking to Gentiles. He's talking to Hebrews. And so it's important for us to remember these things as we go through. Now, we come to verse 4, and verses 4 through 8, and in particularly verses 4 through 6, are these verses which have such strong language, and people really kind of are, are taken aback when they read them. Who is he talking about here? And he says here, For it is impossible... For those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. Now, there's the verses. That is quite a statement. There's an impossibility of renewing certain people to a point of repentance. It's impossible. And who are these people? Are these people believers? Are they unbelievers? And that great controversy comes up. Someone says, well, if they're believers, then it looks like in this passage that they can come, they can fall away, they come to a point where they lose their salvation and they're eternally damned. They're going to be under eternal judgment. And we see that in verse 8, that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected, nigh unto cursing, whose end is to be burned. Is he talking to believers? Because if he's talking to believers, it seems to say that a believer who would fall away would be irrecoverable and be always lost. Or is he talking to unbelievers? But if he's talking to unbelievers, then what about the description up there? I mean, could an unbeliever be one who was once enlightened, who, one who had tasted the heavenly gift, one who was made partakers of the Holy Ghost, one who had tasted the good word of God and of the powers of the world to come? Could that be describing an unbeliever? And so there's, through the ages, there's been great controversy, and, and this was actually one of the reasons that the book of Hebrews was not 
right at first readily accepted into the canon of scriptures. It was this big controversy. And so, as we look at this, um, we looked at, there's four or five different interpretations, and we went over those a couple of weeks ago. I want to just give you another one today, one that I thought was interesting, yet I feel is in error. One of the um, writers that I read, he looks at this passage and he says, well, Calvinists tend to react to the term fall away. This fall away, and that word means to apostatize. To apostatize. And that is a utter repudiation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not, you know, when we think of falling away, let me give you an illustration. Falling away is different than falling into sin. Falling in sin or falling away, those are completely different terms. Let me give you an illustration. When Peter denied Christ, what did he do? He fell into sin. And he was quickly restored when Jesus met him there after his resurrection. Now, what about Judas? Judas, he fell away. Okay, He rejected. He denied, I mean, he, he sold Christ into slavery. I mean, into, into he, I'm thinking about Joseph here. He sold his master. He betrayed him. And so we think, of, and Judas was lost and damned forever. And Jesus said of him, it would be better had he never been born. There's, some, there's a contrast for you. We talk about an apostate, one who has fallen away, denied the faith, rejects everything about Christ, or one who falls into sin. The one who falls into sin, another term could be used, backsliding. Someone who has temporarily been, you know, has gone off the path, um, but will repent and be restored. There's repentance available. Those are two different cases. And so in this passage here, when he talks about falling away, that word is the word apostatize. It is the same idea given and the same word used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament when in the law it talks about a man writing a, giving a writing of divorcement to his wife. He says, I repudiate the marriage. I reject you completely. You are no longer, I have nothing to do with you being married to me. That's the, it's the same word used, so apostatize. To utterly, it's, it's crossing a line, not to come back. And so, uh, so one of the um, people that was giving an opinion on this passage, the Calvinists tend to react to the term fall away, which they interpret to be ultimate damnation by arguing that the persons referred to are obviously unregenerate. And this guy says the difficulty arises in verses 4 and 5 as referring to something short of salvation, those descriptions. Again, somebody says, well, if he's speaking to an unbeliever, how could these, these descriptions, the five different participles that are given, how could they apply to a person that wasn't truly saved? Of course, Arminians view the passage as proof that believers can lose their salvation when they fall away, and they take this as a proof text. But the only problem is, one of the biggest problems of that is, these verses say that if you do fall away, or as they might interpret, if you lose your salvation, you can't get it back. You can't get it back. You're doomed forever if you lose your salvation, which I've never met someone like in those churches, those Arminian-type churches, who say that you know, they keep getting saved over and over. It wasn't like, oops, I lost my salvation. I am forever damned. But these verses are definitely saying that. If you fall away, 
You cannot be restored. It is impossible. Okay? So there's those two points of conflict. And here was the conclusion that this one writer said. He said, it is urgent that spiritual babes in Christ go on to maturity. Yes, he got that right. But then he says, or risk backsliding into a state of permanent and irreversible spiritual dullness or unfruitfulness. Falling away, he says, does not refer to eternal damnation, but rather to fall into a permanent state of stunted spiritual growth, unable to ever grow in grace again. Well, I definitely don't think that this passage is talking about that, remaining a babe. You're, you're, you're a Christian, but you're going to be permanently a babe in Christ. You'll never amount to anything, and you're never going to bear any fruit. The problem with that is you go back to John chapter 5 or 15. <laughs> I think it's 15, where he says, I am the vine, ye are the branches. And we're talking about fruit bearing. Every Christian bears fruit. There's another passage, though, that I want us to look at today, and I mentioned this on Wednesday night, which I think can help us with this passage. Before we turn there, though, look at Hebrews 6 again, I mean Hebrews 6, and look at these verses. He mentions these people who, if they fall away, it's impossible to renew them to repentance, and then in verses 7 and 8, he gives us an illustration. This happens a lot in Scripture. A principle would be given, and then there's an illustration. Paul does this many times in Romans, and in many of his epistles, he'll, he'll give a doctrine, and then he'll illustrate it, sometimes from nature, sometimes from daily life of the people. Jesus did this often in his courses of parables. But here he says, For the earth which drinketh in the rain that cometh oft upon it, and bringeth forth herbs meet for them by whom it is dressed, receiveth blessing from God. But that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected. What is the that referring to? He's on the same topic in these two verses. He's talking about the earth. There's some earth that when it drinks in the rain that comes off upon it, it's been sowed with seed and it brings forth what it's supposed to. It brings forth good fruit-bearing plants and the people who are tilling the land Receive these, it's good land. But, he says, but that land or that earth, which, and of course it is assumed here that it's received the same treatment. The rain has rained on all this land. But what comes forth from this land? That which beareth thorns and briars is what? Is rejected. And then it says, and is nigh unto cursing. And some people say, well, that just means, it's not quite, it's almost being cursed, but not really. That's not what this verse means. That's not what it is saying. It is saying the curse is imminent. It is coming. Nigh into cursing, whose end is to be burned. Okay, and it's final. This is talking about eternal judgment. Now, that illustration right there ought to cause your mind, if you're familiar with scriptures, and again, what do we do when we study Scripture? We compare Scripture with Scripture. If I'm concerned about this passage and I'm wondering, well, is it talking about a believer losing his salvation? Is it talking about an unbeliever? How do I know? Well, we don't just have Hebrews. We have the rest of Scripture. And we compare Scripture with Scripture. And it's very important that we do that. Because if we don't, we're going to have some real trouble with eternal security. Somebody's going to come up to you and say, that, well, hey, it says if you fall away, you can lose your salvation. What do you mean once saved, always saved? What if you sin? You need to know what the Bible says. 
And the Bible definitely talks about eternal security. It teaches it clearly. And so we compare Scripture with Scripture. Now, if you haven't thought of it yet, that's okay. I'm going to have you turn to it. Matthew chapter 13. Let's go to Matthew 13. In this passage, Jesus gives a parable. This particular parable is found three times in the gospel. Gospels. I don't know if each time it's mentioned, it, like I don't know if Jesus only mentioned this parable once in his teaching. And it's recorded by three of the different writers. Maybe Jesus gave this parable in one place. He may have given the parable again somewhere else. I don't know how many times he mentioned it, but it is recorded for us in Matthew, in Mark, and in Luke. John didn't record this particular parable. And in Matthew chapter 13, we have the parable of the soils, where the the sower goes out to sow. In verse 3, well, actually just to give you the setting, the beginning of Matthew 13, the same day Jesus went out of the house and sat by the seaside. And great multitudes were gathered together unto him. And they, they were all, I mean, just crowding him around. They were not social distancing. And so what did he do? And it says the great multitudes were gathered together unto him so that he went into a ship and sat. And the whole multitude stood on the shore. That's a... I like that. He got into a boat, kind of pushed off from shore a little bit, and all the people standing on the shore. And then he spoke to them from the boat and taught them. I'm sure maybe the water carried the sound, amplified it. You know, I, this has nothing to do with the message, but sometimes I think when Jesus, like the Sermon on the Mount, how on earth could people hear him? You know, we think of today, we had to have microphones and speakers, but here Jesus was able to speak and the multitudes could hear him. I guess that uh, Charles Wesley had a very booming voice, and he could speak with that implication to thousands of people. Amazing. So I don't know. But here's Jesus. He pushes off from the shore. He's sitting in a boat, and all the multitudes are gathered on the seashore, and they're listening. It's the Sea of Galilee. And he spake many things unto them in parables. And Jesus did that all the time. I mean, there were times he wasn't speaking parables, but often and he would speak in parables to the multitude. And so he gives this parable, and here it is. Behold, a sower went forth to sow. And when he sowed, some seeds fell by the wayside, and the fowls came and devoured them up. Some fell on stony places where they had not much earth, and forthwith they sprung up because they had no deepness of earth, and when the sun was up, they were scorched. Because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprung up and choked them. But other fell into good ground and brought forth fruit, some an hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some thirtyfold. Who hath ears to hear? Let him hear. I think it's interesting, and as as we go through and we talk about this, I, I was just thinking about this yesterday. It's interesting that Jesus said at the end of the parable, not before, At the end of the parable, he says, who has ears to hear, let him hear. And I wonder if that wasn't somewhat of an invitation. But let's go back. He he gives this parable. I don't know how much time expires here, goes on, but the disciples come to him later on, and they speak to Jesus, and they ask this question, why speakest thou unto them in parables? 
why do you speak unto them, or even unto us, they might have asked, but why, why do you keep speaking in parables? What was a parable? Well, you just heard one. It's a very interesting story. It's a, it's a story taken from common life. But there's a principle that is designed to teach, a spiritual principle. Now, of course, again, we look back with our Bibles. We can look at We see the explanation of it. These people didn't have anything. They just heard this. And what were they thinking? Well, we don't know. But the disciples said, why do you keep talking to them in parables? He, and then what are they implying? Jesus, they don't understand what you're saying. What, what do you mean? Why do you speak in riddles? In parables? Why do you speak to them like that? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. But to them it is not given. And then in verse 12 he says, For whosoever hath, to him shall be given, and he shall have more abundance. But whosoever hath not, from him shall be taken away even that he hath. Therefore speak I to them in parables, because they, seeing, see not, and hearing they hear not, neither do they understand. Now let's just stop there for a moment, because I want you to think about this. Here were the disciples, and they ask Jesus, why are you speaking to them in parables? At this point, the disciples are really in the same position as the multitude. They do not understand what Jesus said. And how do we know that? Because Jesus is going to tell them. Keep your finger in Matthew 13 because we're going to come back here and go to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. In the very first part of the chapter, it gives the same parable. He closes it in, in 9. He says, And he said unto them, He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, they that were about him with the twelve asked him of the parable, asked of him the parable. And then he says, unto you it is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God, but unto them that are without, there, that's the multitude, them that are without, all these things are done in parables, that seeing they may see and not perceive, hearing they may hear and not understand, lest at any time they should be converted and their sins should be forgiven them. Verse 13, And he, Jesus, said unto them, his disciples, Know ye not this parable? Don't you understand this parable? And then he asked this question, And how then will you know all parables? Or how will you know any of my parables? That's a very good question. Because like I said, up to this point, the disciples and the multitudes are in the same position regarding their understanding of what Jesus has just said. Mark, or in Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8 is the other parallel passage. Luke 
And in chapter 8, again, it starts out the same way. In verse 8, at the end of the parable, he cries out, He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. And then in verse 9, And his disciples asked him, saying, What might this parable be? Okay? Now, after we read these three accounts of this parable, we, are come, we come to the conclusion the disciples did not understand. The multitude did not understand. But there is a difference between the multitude and the disciples. And we need to discern what that is. Because there is also a difference between good soil and bad soil. And in Hebrews chapter 6, there is a difference between the ground that brings forth the fruit, the good fruit, and the ground that's bringing forth the thorns and the briars. And we need to know that. So keep that in mind as we go back to Matthew chapter 13. Here in Matthew 13, Jesus has just told his, his disciples, ask him, why speak a sound in parables? And the other ones there are saying, what does this mean? And he tells them why he's speaking in parables. It's given unto you to know the mysteries of heaven, and unto them it is not given. The very next verse, in verse 12, he says, For whosoever hath to him shall be given, and he shall have more abundance, but whosoever hath not from him shall be taken away, even that he hath. I I like to call this the haves and the have-nots. Jesus says, There's some that have, and they're going to be given more. There's some that have not, and even what they've got is going to be taken away. So what is he referring to? And and he says, therefore, speak I to them, referring to the multitudes, in parables, because they seeing, and he's talking about physical sight, he's seeing they seeing, see not. Now, this, this is cryptic speech. This is kind of, it almost sounds like double talk. What's he saying here? They can see, but they don't see. They hearing, hear not. Now, if you have small children, you know exactly what he's talking about. How many times have you told something to your child? Hey, go do this. And, you know, 15 minutes later, you said, hey, you didn't do that. I told you to do that. And they said, Huh? Wait, you were looking at me when I gave you the command. I told you to do that. I don't remember. You know, hearing they heard not, right? So hearing without perception. And so here Jesus is talking about these people. They, they can see with their eyes. Sure, they, they, they have physical sight. They watched Jesus teach. They heard the words that he said, but they didn't understand what he meant. And then he says in verse 14, And in them, again, in them, the multitude, in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which said, or which saith, By hearing ye shall hear, and shall not understand. And seeing ye shall see, and shall not perceive. For this people's heart is waxed gross, and their ears are, and here's this term, dull of hearing. Their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest at any time they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and should understand with their heart and should be converted, and I should heal them. 
That right there is one of the most, I have got to say in the scripture, that is one of the most shocking verses to me. Shocking. Do you understand what Jesus just said? If these people could have perceived with their eyes, if they could have understood with their ears, what would they have done? They would have, they would have repented and been saved. But their eyes are shut, their ears are not. And he says, and I, this is why I speak to them in parables. These are the have-nots, and I am speaking in parables to keep them in the dark. That, my friends, is terrifying. That is terrifying. To be kept in the dark deliberately. The disciples were the haves. The multitudes that did not perceive, and by the way, there were more disciples than just the twelve. And you know that. There were many people who followed Jesus called disciples. Many times in Scripture when it's talking about disciples, it is referring specifically to the twelve. And I'm not sure exactly if he's just talking to the twelve here, but there were others who followed Jesus and believed in him. But here it says, the disciples were the haves, the multitude were the have-nots. And what was the difference between the disciple and the multitude? Well, the disciples had been called by Jesus. They had actually been called from where? Called out of the multitude. Jesus selected his disciples out of the multitude and declared his truth unto them. And let me give you a couple of references here. If you have your Bibles, you can turn, but if you can't turn fast enough, just listen. John chapter 6 and verse 44. In John 6, Jesus said this, No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. You think of the disciples that were with Jesus. Why were they with Jesus? Why had they come to him? Because the Father had drawn them. Jesus had selected them. He had chosen them. In John chapter 14 and verse 6, John 14, 6, Jesus said this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. If you want to know the Father, you can only find him through me. In John 15 and verse 16, Jesus said this to his disciples. He says, you have not chosen me. Think about that. You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth what? Fruit. All right. Now catch this. That you should go forth and be, you should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain that whatsoever ye ask of the Father in my name, he may give it you. These things I command you, that you love one another. What do those verses tell us? Those tell us that, you know what? The disciples did not choose Jesus. 
And we know that. Jesus went around and he chose his disciples. And by way of extension, by the way we understand what Jesus is teaching here, and that what the Bible tells us is that no man is seeking after God. No man seeks after God. God is the one who seeks after us. And he draws us out of the world. He takes us out of the multitude. He takes us unto himself for what purpose? To bring forth thorns and briars? Absolutely not. He, bring, he chose them and ordained them that they should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain. And let me tell you, I do not believe there is any such thing as a Christian who does not produce fruit. That's an impossibility. If you are in the vine, you will produce fruit. Now, some 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold, and certainly there are different levels of maturity and different levels of commitment, even amongst believers, the commitment to Christ and the uh, evidenced in the amount of fruit that they're bringing forth. But the result of being in Christ is fruit-bearing, not thorn-bearing. Now, you may have met a prickly believer here and there, but that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about personalities. We're talking about bearing fruit. Now, that was John uh, 15 and verse 16. And then in verse 19, if ye were of the world, the world would love you. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. John 17, 6. I have manifested thy name. Jesus is praying to his father here in John 17. And he says, I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. And there are other references. We won't need to turn to all of them. Second Thessalonians 2.13, Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30, talking about those whom God did foreknow that he has called, he predestinated, he justified, he glorified them. Our salvation is something that is a done deal. But here, the disciples were the haves. They had been chosen by Jesus. And remember what he asked them? He says, how will you understand this parable? How will you understand all parables? And what is the answer? How can anyone understand the word of God? There's only one way. He has to enlighten us. He has to explain it to us. And this is what happens in Matthew, back in Matthew chapter 13. He says, he just quoted Isaiah, but he says, But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For verily I say unto you that many prophets and righteous men have desired to see those things which ye see and have not seen them, and to hear those things which ye hear and have not heard them. Verse 18, hear ye, therefore, the parable of the sower. Jesus says, I'm going to tell you. I'm going to give you what the multitude did not get. And now again, this is why I think at the end of the parables, when Jesus said, he that hath an ear to hear, let him hear. It comes, it comes across, and I, this is personal opinion. I can't say exactly what it means. I don't know who agrees with me or not, but it seems to me like Jesus is saying, if you want to know, come to me. He that hath an ear to hear, come here. I'll explain it. The invitation was open. The disciples were chosen. 
The multitudes did not come, but they're responsible. Now, Jesus said that the disciples were blessed because they saw and heard, but the key, the key was that they understood. And how did that happen? It was because he explained the parable to them. And there he goes in Matthew chapter 13, beginning at verse 19 and going on through verse 23, he explains to them the, the parable of the sower. What was the seed? What type of ground this is? What's the result? And the good ground. And at the good ground, it says at the end in verse 23, but he that receiveth seed into the good ground is he that heareth the word and what? And understands it. And number two, bears fruit. He understands and bears fruit. That's good soil. That's the good soil of which the writer of Hebrews is referring to in verse 7. For the rain comes over the earth. The earth drinks in the rain, and it brings forth fruit. And so here the good ground brings forth fruit. Now, again, that parable was just as difficult for the disciples as it was for the multitude. They couldn't understand the parable until Jesus explained it to them. And here in Matthew 13, but also in Matthew chapter 15 and verse 15, the disciples asked Jesus in verse 15, Then declared Peter and said unto him, Declare unto us this parable. Different parable, different time, but what do you mean? We want to know. Explain this to us. And that was divine intervention. That's what was missing with the multitude. That was the illumination. God opening their minds to explain to them the truth. The multitude saw and heard and did not understand. And in verse 23 of Matthew 13, those that understood went forth and bore fruit. Those who don't understand bring forth briars and thorns. Now, think, because what is the writer of Hebrews warning about? He's saying, be careful. Don't be dull of hearing. Don't be dull of hearing. Many things I want to say to you, but you become dull of hearing. And there's a great warning, and he says, go on to maturity. Don't be, have to be, be taught again the basics. Go on to maturity. Now, there's a connection with this seeing and hearing. And we're seeing that in Hebrews 6, 4, and 5. And the... <clears throat> Among those who had the experiences that are listed in Hebrews chapter 6, remember those five participles given? They had, um, here I'm drawing a blank for a second. Back in chapter 6, what happened? They were once enlightened. They had tasted of the heavenly gift. They were made partakers of the Holy Ghost. They had tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come. Those five descriptions... Among those who had had these experiences were those whose outcome is described in verse 8. These same people, if they fall away, it says, cannot be renewed to repentance. And they are the ones who bear thorns and briars. They are rejected, nigh unto cursing whose end is to be burned. 
Jesus described the condition of the multitudes as having hearts that were waxed gross and ears that were dull of hearing. Now he's referencing Isaiah chapter 6. Back in Isaiah chapter 6 is where we see these words, they're, they're quoted. Isaiah said this in Isaiah 6 and verse 9. Isaiah has just asked, Lord, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Then the Lord says this, the voice. Then Isaiah says, here am I, send me. And so what does God tell Isaiah to say? Here's the message. And he said, go and tell this people, hear ye indeed, but understand not. See ye indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat. Make their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and convert and be healed. Of course, then it goes on in that prophecy, and then said, I, Lord, how long? And he answered, until the cities be wasted without inhabitant, and the houses without a man, and the land be utterly desolate. This judgment was being declared. But here, make the heart of this people fat. Their heart has been waxed gross. That waxed gross means becoming thick, mentally dull, spiritually insensitive. And you can just, you can just imagine a heart just encased with fat just, and just struggling, not, not able to function. Heart is waxed gross. Dull of hearing means slow to understand. Now, that's just a literal definition there. But what he's saying here, these people were dull of hearing. What does it mean to be dull of hearing? Again, you have to have heard to have become dull of hearing. So these were people who had heard the truth. They had heard it over and over, but they were not acting on it. This is the danger. This is the danger of sitting under the preaching of God's word day in and day out or week in and week out. This is the danger of sitting down and having your own devotions and reading the Bible and just reading it glibly, reading it without understanding or reading it without obedience. If there is not an application and an obedience to what you hear, you will become dull of hearing. You will no longer be moved by the scripture. You'll read it. I'm getting out of that today, but I just got to do it. It's my habit because I'm a Christian. That's what Christians do. And if I don't, I'll feel guilty. So I read my Bible today. Folks, that's dull of hearing. Their hearts were waxed gross. Their ears were dull of hearing. Now, this Isaiah passage... It was also used by Paul, this is very interesting, in the last chapter of Acts. Paul is there, he's a prisoner in Rome. The Jews come to hear him, and Paul takes the opportunity to speak to these Jews, and he tells them about Jesus. He gives them the gospel. And how did they respond? Well, they responded as you might expect. It says that when they agreed not amongst themselves and departed after that Paul had spoken one word, well spake the Holy Ghost by Isaiah the prophets unto the fathers. And what did he say to them? He quotes this passage, and he's applying it to the Jews right there. They were rejecting the gospel. They had heard it over and over, and he says, Well said Isaiah unto the fathers, saying, Go unto this people and say, Hearing ye shall hear and not understand, seeing ye shall see and not perceive, for the heart of this people is waxed gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, 
Their ears, have, their ears have they closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and should be converted and I should heal them. And then Paul says this. He says, Be it known therefore unto you that the salvation of God is sent unto the Gentiles and that they will hear it. Judgment. The Jews had become dull of hearing. They did not respond. They did not believe. Their hearts were waxed gross just as the prophet had prophesied, just as Isaiah had prophesied. Now, it's interesting that this passage of Isaiah, when used in the New Testament, most often refers to unbelievers who have rejected the truth. Let's go back. Let's go back to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 6. And I want you to note just a couple of things here as we we come towards the end here. Remember, as we look at this passage, the question is, well, of whom is the writer, to whom is the writer referring? Is he referring to unbelievers or referring to believers? And as we spoke two weeks ago, I have come to the conclusion, I truly believe that he's speaking to unbelievers in this particular passage. As a whole, the book is written to believers. It's written to Hebrew Christians. And he is talking about the need for maturity. But as you read, you come along, and if you come to verse 3... He's been speaking about these doctrines. He says, and this we will do if God permit. And immediately he changes his pronouns. Look who he is addressing. When I speak to you, this is an English lesson. When I speak to you, I refer to you as you. It's the second person. I'm the first person, the speaker. I'm referring to you. We're having a conversation. The writer of Hebrews has been talking to these people, speaking to them. He goes, and he uses the term you, the second person pronoun. All of a sudden, in verse 4, he says, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened. That's third person. And have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost. And every one of these verb forms is used in the third person. You have to understand Greek to get all that. You can talk to my son about that. He's studying Greek right now. But these are in the third person. He goes on in verse 6. If they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucified themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. He speaks in third person. And then come down, after he gives that illustration, come down to verse 9. He turns back to them and says, But beloved, he's speaking to Christians, speaking to his brethren. doesn't refer to the wicked or the world as beloved. He says, But beloved, we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. Things that accompany salvation. Now, the believing Hebrews who were addressed in verse 9 possessed whatever it was. He says, they possessed the things that accompany salvation, which the people in verses 4 through 6 did not. That gives us a little better perspective on those five participles. So therefore, and as we go through that, so, so to be once enlightened, tasting the heavenly gift, made partakers of the Holy Ghost, and tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come. Those five things could be a description, could be described of one who falls away and is eternally lost, one who has never been saved. 
because in verse 9, he says, we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation. Now, if you really want to, you want to read something that will bother you as far as intellectually, it's hard reading. John Owen. He was um, a pastor back in the days of Oliver Cromwell, a Puritan, and he has written, and this right here, this particular thought right here, he brings out in some of his writings. I'm telling you, it's, it's, it's difficult English, but this is very interesting. That these people, they, he said, we're persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation. What were those things? Well, guess what, folks? It's fruit. Keep reading. Look as you go on. Believers are described as what? He says, For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and your labor of love, which you have showed toward his name, and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. Ah! That, listen, here's some proof of their salvation. What, what, what was it? It was they demonstrated the duties of obedience and the fruits of faith. And if you keep on reading, this, uh, this was their work and labor of love toward God, ministering to the saints. Secondly, we see the faithfulness of God at work on their behalf. And then their preservation is guaranteed by the faithfulness and the immutability or the unchangeable nature of God, verses 17 and 18. These people truly were believers. So then, why the need for the warning? And why did, why did the writer of Hebrews interject this thing about you know, unbelievers? What's he saying there? What's the point he's making? I believe it's this. Not going on to maturity may be indicative of a person who was never in the faith. And remember the theme here. He is saying, let's go on. Grow. Let's go to maturity. Let's be bearing fruit. Let's be serving the Lord. Let's be growing in the faith. And beware lest you become dull of hearing. The multitude was dull of hearing. That multitude followed Jesus around. Why? Well, occasionally they got a free meal, free lunch. And occasionally Jesus worked miracles. Folks, I don't care who you are. That's amazing. I got to see that again. And, And what was their response? Of course, eventually, hey, let's make him king. If he can heal everybody and feed everybody, then we can be Rome. Easy, we got a great army. They were dull of hearing. They didn't understand what Jesus was saying, and they missed it. But the disciples, the ones that God had chosen, and by extension, we who are believers whom God has chosen out of the multitude, out of the world, we are not to be dull of hearing. There is a danger in being dull of hearing. When you hear the word of God, you act on it. You do something about it. Don't just listen and say that was nice. Because if that's the way you respond to the word of God, it may be an indicator that you are not a believer. I'm not here to assure you of your salvation, and I'm not here to convince you that you're not saved. God knows that, and his spirit bears witness with yours. But the warning is given here, and it's a strong warning. And it is well that we heed this warning. And so listen. Not going on to maturity may be indicative of a person who is not in the faith. Let us go on to maturity. Let us not need again to be retaught the basics. 
Now, he didn't say forsake the basics. Sure, we rejoice in the death of Christ and our salvation and and these truths, the foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God, which, of course, you can't have. I mean, you can't be saved if you don't have that. But we're to go on. And the writer of Hebrews is going to go on and he's going to talk about the richness and the comparison of the priesthood of Christ and how wonderful it is. And he's going to expound to these Jews how Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that was written in the law. That's meat. And they needed to be able to understand it. So here today, let us take away from this at least these two points. Don't be dull of hearing, because if you are, it may be indicative that you're not a believer. But secondly, if you're a believer, keep growing. Keep growing in maturity. Let your life be characterized by that fruit which comes because you're abiding in the vine, you're abiding in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this passage. And Lord, as we have looked at it carefully, Lord, help us to examine ourselves. Lord, lest we become dull of hearing, may we be obedient hearers. And Lord, let us who are believers, let us who are called out, let us go on to maturity. Help us to grow. Lord, help us to bear fruit for your glory. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.